Hey garden nerds, just a quick note before we go into today's episode, just wanted to let you know that this recording was made back in April, early April of 2021, so keep that in mind as you listen. It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is Matt Reese Warren, all the way from across the pond in England. Matt is an ecological gardener, designer, and writer. He's spent the last 15 years working outdoors, holding positions with the National Trust, and as head gardener for Kilver Court Gardens, and establishing private gardens for clients in the Southwest. His new book, The Ecological Gardener, How to Create Beauty and Biodiversity from the Soil Up, from Chelsea Green, hits bookstores on April 29th. Thanks for chatting with me, Matt. Uh, not at all. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, we're, I love that we can speak across the distance and time zones this way. It's always fascinating to me that <laughs> I'm, I, it's my midday and your evening where you are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about this uh, yeah, Zoom sort of um, virtual living is that, you know, you can finish and straight away go and sort of see the kids or have a cup of tea without having to go anywhere. I know. And I am, for all, in the interest of full disclosure, I am in my bedroom slippers right now. So there's that. <laughs> all <not>. right. <laughs> so before we dive into the book, tell me what your garden looks like and what's growing there. If anything, is it past your your last frost date right now uh no can always um frost a little bit later than this but it gets quite rare um i mean my garden i'm a professional gardener so most of my time is spent in other people's gardens but my garden's quite small a little um postage stamp of a garden like probably only sort of 25 meters square but we make the most of it i've got two little girls so um i make sure that they've got space to play but i've got some pots and some bulbs are coming up you know some spring bulbs like uh, daffodils and and some of the early sort of um you know wandering wildflowers like Herb robert and stuff but yeah it looks it looks nice it's greening up like it's always april is the month where everything just starts to go green the leaves start to come out and uh, the grass starts to grow and and the bulbs start to sort of um, wax out on the leaves before they flower. It's, it's great. I love it. Nice. Well, I assume that you make the most of that postage stamp garden because that's what we have to do, right? You describe yourself as an ecological gardener, thus the name of your book. What brought you to this way of gardening? I think, um, you know, I've always followed... Um, methods that are leaning towards that organic wildlife friendly um i think the idea of encapsulating it within uh, ecological um came a couple of years ago through what we all know as the sort of awareness of climate change and biodiversity loss uh, specifically reports like the ipcc and the ipbs uh, really brought it home to me uh, in around 2019. So it started to distill the idea of the book um, and it started to distill my working practice, uh, really, um, because um, it was a good roundhouse way of saying everything I do from designing to uh, physically working in the garden for clients or to sort of consulting and talking about gardens is hedged within the idea that it's ecological. So it, lo it looks to focus 
their ecological needs first above everything else so aesthetics or um function or production but doesn't forget all those you know i've been working in gardens for 15 years i know that they need to be aesthetical i know that they need to be uh, full of expression personal expression and, and people need the liberty to do that but i started to think that you know bringing the message um more forcefully maybe than it's been before as well a little, little bit more not, not too much but a little bit more because the situation seemed to demand it you know insects um declining and um you know biodiversity decreasing then our gardens become refuges and sanctuaries for those things right and we've been fortunate to have a number of guests on this podcast who are proponents of building wild habitats like you describe in this book do you have any favorite type of habitats to create for wildlife? Yeah, I mean, I love to sort of look towards the natural solutions first. So um, turning lawns into wildflower meadows, leaving rotting wood in your garden is really important. It's, it's to me a lot more about the methodology and the mindset. So not trying to tidy up too much, you know, not having um, monospecies hedges and cutting them at the right time. But I do also like those really selective projects. And the book also touches on something like making a bug palace. And I did love doing that. I did it with my children. Um, I've done many now, um, and the, the girls love to get involved. And so I've noticed sort of even that it can be more um, about engaging people within that. So, you know, you could have a natural garden, but making these bug palaces or bee hotels and, and making it all yourself. So maybe not going and buying one off the shelf can engage young children and anyone within the process. And that makes them start to think about bugs and insects and pollinators and all that. So, yeah, absolutely. So. Right. This is this palette bug palace. And it's it's basically wood stacked up and filled to, with crevices, nooks and crannies for bugs to make a home in. Yeah, very simple. So simple. Um, so you just need pallets. So uh, easy to get, even if you um, have to buy them. They're surely going to be cheap. But usually you should be able to get it as a waste material from wherever. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, you just stack each layer putting soil in the middle um, and wood chip and stuff like that. And then on the outside, you just start to fill with all manner of different ways and means in which sort of wildlife can uh, make habitat or use. So small sort of um, maybe masonry bricks that have got holes in them or bits of bamboo or uh, straw for birds to make nests in or acorns and all different things, you know, and you just really cram it in and, um, and they will hopefully come over and take it over. But you never know. But yeah, if you've got a small sort of like, I don't know, inner city garden or something like that, you've got a really good chance in a meter square to stack up these um, bug palaces and, and, and really make a sort of home for insects and wildlife. That's cool. It's something that I've wanted to try. And and we had a swarm box up for bees for a long time. Then we ended up finding a rescue that we we brought home for that. But for the native bees and for other pollinators and even, like you said, birds, that's a great idea. You have talked about different methods of composting, like with biochar and vermicomposting and bokashi. Uh, Since we really haven't discussed bokashi much on this show, let's talk about that. Walk us through the process of making bokashi and what is it? 
Bokashi is is fascinating um, because I like to see the idea of compost as this engine of regeneration and um, a way for you to bring about a real kind of no waste within your whole household. But it's quite difficult with certain foodstuffs. So we all know and are probably all quite good at sort of scraps, you know, so cutting up vegetables, that can easily go onto the uh, compost pile. But um, cooked food, meats, dairies, fish, and all cooked food, actually, we all know that it, you can't, so it just goes in the bin. And so Bokashi like, holds that, you know, it holds that ability to take that and uh, bring it into the composting method. And so what it does is um, it ferments, it pickles that food through microorganism activity. Um, so you can simply make them yourself because they're just, um, you know, plastic bucket or tort um, inside one another um, to allow it to drain. But you do need to sort of have the right, what they call uh, EM1, which is, is microorganisms to go in. Making that yourself is extremely complicated. I've tried it myself, but um, you can. You can bury things out in the woods or, or use dairy, but it's quite complex. So you might need to buy the bran, right. um, but you can make your own tubs. And you can buy sort of store tubs as well. But that's what it's mainly for, is taking those really hard uh, food waste that you'd usually put in straight in the bin because they can't go in the compost pile, uh, into a bokashi bin and then take that out once that um, food waste has been pickled and fermented. Um, so it won't smell. Once you put this stuff in, it dries it out. And as long as you leach out all of the leachate, as long as you take all the liquid out, then you then take that and put it back out into the compost pile uh, so it won't attack, uh, you know, it won't attract uh, rodents or anything like that it will just go straight on the compost pile and start to decompose normally. So it's a wonderful affiliate to uh, composting to bring about less and less waste going into our bins. Right. And your method, you have a bucket within a bucket with holes drilled inside the inner bucket for the drainage. I've, I've only ever seen Bokashi done where you put the bran and the ingredients into a plastic bag and squeeze all the air out of it and tie it up. Uh, uh, and, and so I was like, oh, that kind of gets really anaerobic and weird. So the fact that you are offering a different, a different way of doing it, I kind of like that. It seems like it's uh, and plastic free, which is going to be another one of my questions coming up soon. It's very yeah. cool. It's a cool idea. Yeah, and no, it's a good point you made there because um, we do have to understand anaerobic and aerobic. So uh, anaerobic, it is anaerobic, but it's dry. And what you were saying there is wet, which produces methane. Um, and it's, it's quite a poor way of doing it. Well, quite difficult. Like, you know, usually it's upscaled and methane is captured in things like slurry bits in agricultural sort of settings. So, yeah, doing it dry is, is by far and away a much better method. All right. Well, we we all know that plastics are unfortunately a really big part of gardening. And you address this in your book. You've got some suggestions for how to reduce the use of plastics in gardens. I, I noticed there's one photo of you using recycled soup cans to pot up cuttings. What are some of the other things that we can do to either reduce or eliminate plastics? Yeah, I think that it's just completely out of control in gardening. Like, because it is so versatile so and it's just sort of gardening and the versatility and the weathering abilities of plastic have just come together in this sort of perfect unison that um it's just exploded and, and 
I, I would just never forget the day I took over an allotment from an elderly couple. And I took away, so my van is just like a, a, a normal worker's van, you know, with a big back that you can fill up. Took away two loads of um, waste from this one allotment plot that were mainly plastic, plastic bowls, plastic hoops, plastic netting, um, plastic tarps. So it's really just gone out of control. And uh, um, I think it's really about trying to say, come on, we can just try things differently. They might not be perfect. I think that's the way of thinking about it. You know, the plastic pot is kind of perfect for um, boiling up plants, but um, it lasts for 500 years. Uh, it will not biodegrade. So if, even if you use it for most of your lifetime <laughs> and you go, look, I've used this plastic pot forever, um, then you're still sort of going to go to a landfill. So I think, you know, I really love using things like hessian, uh, burlap, I think it's called juice. That's, yes, we call it burlap here. You call it hessian, yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's made out of plant fibers, so it will just sort of rot back. So, um, you know, I advocate the idea that you can wrap plants roots in that even from shops if you like it's quite a radical idea but what it means is that it's quite easy to do on your own scale at home so if you have uh, seedlings or um, plants that you've divided you know um, wrap them in hessian and, and they will be absolutely fine as long as you're watering it in the same way you know i do like the idea of recycling uh, tin and and metal uh, being tins or whatever you know like, i do love that they they do rot away and rust quite quickly but then that doesn't matter either because that can go back and recycle in and feed into the ground uh, i think there's a myriad of options there there is so many options to take away plastic from the gardening method especially in veg production. I don't really talk about veg production in the book, but that's where it becomes more and more evident. In, in, and if we could really attack it there, um, you know, stuff like the hoops, plastic hoops for netting, I understand the need for netting, but and maybe that netting is actually the one thing that you could never take away, but you can definitely make, like, get away with the uh, away from the hoops and you know you could use stakes cut from sort of coppiced uh, trees here in the UK um it's hazel or uh, ash and um put the netting over that or even create your own uh, coppice if you, you you want to um but there's always there's always a different option and the materials are really important in gardens it's really important to look again at just question it ask yourself do i really need this is i know it's the cheapest <laughs> I right know last, but um you know and, and, and you know i do understand that i'm not you know affluent enough to not understand sort of price point and understand that but um we really must you know look beyond and, and see what we're passing on for the next generation i think yeah you made a point of saying that the plastic pots that we get our seedlings from at the nursery, and I'll interject something in a second, but you said, you know, you use it, maybe you reuse it five to 25 times, but then it still goes into the landfill. It really stuck with me. And particularly here in the U.S. anyway, I don't know if it's the same for you, but plastic pots are almost always black or a dark color. And the way that it is, we were like, oh yeah, we can recycle this, but we can't because the the lasers that read the code or the, the or the chemical signature of the plastic can't read black plastic, and so they don't. It it just throws it, it tosses it away as as um, waste. And so, yeah. you know, yeah, you can bring the pots back to the nurseries and they'll reuse them. I have a couple of nurseries that I do that with, and I reuse them myself, but. 
I would love it if they would actually just start using <laughs> a different material. It would be great. And, 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 you know, advocate for that on a, on a corporate level that would make the biggest difference, I think, because it's the main growers who are producing these in these pots. And there's, there's no way really for us to stop it from happening unless they take action and we make, make them take action. So I'm just throwing that in yeah. there. I know I totally agree. I mean, because yeah, I mean, I've, I've been a plant buyer, so I know the industry side of things is different. Uh, when you upscale, you're sort of talking about, you know, slow moving tankers. Whereas I like the fact that we are sort of, you know, small sort of skiffs that can turn in the wind ourselves. So the choices, uh, you know, we make can be much more sort of, um, you know, quick and easy and, and using sort of less uh, black plastic and, and using fiber pots or whatever is, is, is much, mm. is much more sort of um, positive for us. And the, the industry sort of is a different game that you can kind of get a bit down in, in, the, in the mouth about. But for ourselves, we can definitely try things you know, right now. Right. And I've always wanted to venture into soil blocks. There are these machines that you, you, they look like little plungers, like you're setting off dynamite or something where it squeezes bricks of soil into blocks that you then plant in. And have you ever Uh, used those before? uh, Yeah, very briefly though, on a demonstration day. So I haven't actually um, used them myself, um, but I think they're fantastic. Yeah, I, I think you need a real specific type of soil. And then uh, I think they do put fiber in it, so core or something similar, um, and possibly an element of clay in there, like clay seed balls. Sort of, I've made those myself. But yeah, I love that. I, lo- I love that. Anything like that, it just takes it away from um, the seed uh, trays or. Uh, those um, single seed propagation trays, like they're the ones that just seem to always get broken really easily. Right. And um, <laughs> yeah, as you say, it's the same here in the UK, the black uh, plastic for some horrible, ironical reason, just <laughs> cannot be read by the machines to be recycled. So um, yeah. Yeah. Here we are trying to do good in the world and we're, you know, <laughs> nice try, but oh, well, so we're working yeah. on it. You have a lot of interesting projects in the book. But you've got this one crazy bathtub project that I want to know more about. What is the bathtub reed bed? Yeah, I mean, that's um, it's similar to the Bokashi, and it's an affiliated sort of system towards, you know, recycling and reclaiming uh, water. So much like plastic, fresh water in the garden would seem to have gone a little bit awry. And, um, you know, it's so easy to reach for the tap. Um, and that we've kind of overlooked the fact that recycling and capturing and harvesting water uh, is really sort of the main focus that gardens need to have from now on, I believe, because for one, like capturing um, rainwater is so easy. Mm-hmm. And in the US, actually, you're much better than we are over here in the UK in areas of extreme uh, drought in the southwest desert regions, and same in the similar desert regions of um, the uh, Middle East and uh, Australia. But the reed bed takes that and says you can capture it in the ground, in swales and ponds, you can capture um, it off your roofs, but you can also reuse the grey water that you uh, use in your household. But it's quite complex, and so you need to filter it through many different mediums um, to take out the nutrient. Uh, the colliery is, imagine like the farmer's field. The farmer's field has too much uh, nitrogen or phosphorus, phosphates in it, 
Um, so it has an overabundance of nutrient. And that's the problem for the river systems. It's the same with grey water. It's just overly abundant in uh, nutrients that the um, natural world can't handle. So you will need to do something if you want to divert your drains or just very simplistically take out basins of um, washing or hand washing, then you need it to go through a system. And the reeds are nature's great purifier. So I live down um, at a place called the Somerset Levels. So it's a low ground and um, has um, been drained over the years, unfortunately, to for farming, but uh, in many thousands, tens of thousands, hundred thousand years ago, it was just a wetland with reeds everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reeds will filter out the uh, impurities as well as the medium that they sit in. So in the bathtub, there is rocks and gravels and soil, and they all do the same thing. So you move through the system, you bring grey water in the top, you push it through this system of filtration, and then out the other end, um, you start to get uh, purified water. It's, it's not for drinking, but it's fine for plants. You know, So it's, uh, it is a really fun and fascinating way to do things, but it takes a lot of re-plumbing to set it up but <laughs> right. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great fun great fun yeah i i think that's a it's an admirable project to take on and something i still want to do here unfortunately my garden and my laundry system and all the shower things are at the opposite end of the house and so we'd have to drill through concrete <laughs> to get yeah. them all <laughs> to go in the right direction but but it's still, I'm still like, I'm still really hoping that someday I'll be able to do that kind of thing. So the, the bathtub reed bed was really enticing to me because I thought, oh, maybe I could do something like that. And it's pretty too, because it's a bathtub. It's a clawfoot bathtub. So kind of oh, cool. Oh, yeah. 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 And I thought all the guns were designed like, uh, I think it always has to look good. It has to sort of, well, it's vernacular or what, but, um, you know, I do come from a design point of view, even though we're talking a lot about wildlife and ecology, I do believe that everything you put in must sort of blend and be, be something that you want to look at, you know, um, because I think you're more likely to do it and more likely to sort of uh, want to keep it up and keep doing it if you look at it and think, yeah, it looks fantastic as well. Yeah. Well, it is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? Well, finally, my tip was to capture more water <laughs> before the end of the spring rains. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, in my, my tip would be that um, I want gardeners or I'd implore gardeners to just try to break from the shackles and the bonds that they they are within, within their mindset. And I've been there. So it's not like I'm saying this uh, from some high mountain. Um, but just look again at certain processes that you've done. Like if you, you know, always cut the lawn, you know, from spring till autumn, just take a moment and go, shall I try just waiting a little bit longer or cutting a few paths here? Or, you know, there's there's so much advice and so much how-to in gardening that sometimes, and people are really kind of sometimes afraid of gardening, but I think um, by simplifying and just asking yourself the question, should I do that this summer and this season for us in the temperate regions uh, would be a great boon and benefit for yourself and for your garden and for the greater natural world as a result. So that would be mine. Just stop, think, take a moment and um, contemplate whether you're doing the right thing. 
And I find that a lot of people, their instincts are pretty good. So it's, a, it's really about listening, listening to yourself, I think, in a lot of cases. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. Yeah. It's usually very simple. Um, gardening shouldn't be complicated and shouldn't be sort of something unattainable. Anyone can garden. It's for anyone. And so, yeah, always trust your instinct, even though you can be overloaded with information. <laughs> Right. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for sharing that expert tip and for being a guest on the Gardener Tip of the Week podcast. Uh, Thank you. Loved it. How should people look for you on the internet? Where will they find you? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm like everyone else, social media, so Instagram, Twitter, uh, my my website, uh, mattreeswarren.com, Chelsea Green. Have a, a nice profile of me on their website. So maybe one day I'll have a Wikipedia page, but I'm, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> we have to earn it, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, great. Okay. Well, that's that's good enough information. Uh, Garden Nerds, you'll find links to Matt's book on gardennerd.com this week and links to his website and the social media feeds. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!